Amen. All right, well, before we get into the sermon this morning, I do need to make an announcement. Uh, Valerie Zuniga uh, was born on Thursday, December 6th, weighing 7 pounds and 12 ounces. So be, uh, please be praying for the Zuniga family, Brother Victor, Miss Julissa, and of course the girls. And uh, they have a new uh, member in the family. And also, we, of course, whenever a lady uh, gives uh, birth in our church, we try to provide meals the church family provides meals for about a week for them. Now, uh, so we have a meal sign-up sheet. So ladies, if you can help us with that, make sure you see my wife after the service and sign up for that. Now, let me say a couple of things. I realize that we have like three or four ladies all due in uh, December, and also we've had some surgeries and people were helping. So uh, if you, uh, as far as meals are concerned, so if you can help with the meals, if, if even if you're not someone who normally does it, but you do it from time to time, we could use your help this month, all right? We have a lot of ladies, and we want to love on all of them and help all of them, and I'm sure that when you had a baby and the church brought you meals, it was helpful to you. So if you could help us with that, we would really appreciate it. Make sure you see my wife after the service to sign up for that. All right, well, we're there in First Corinthians chapter number 2, and if you remember last week, we started a very unique type of series called A More Sure Word, and last week, we went through and I preached a sermon called Why We Are King James Only. Now, I don't normally preach a lot of sermons that are this kind of specific, especially on Sunday morning. Uh, we like to uh, get some principles from the Word of God and uh, real practical things, but from time to time, it's good to kind of go deep on the doctrine and explain a few things. And if you remember last week, if you were with us, we talked about how not all Bible versions are created equal, and we talked about the fact that there are uh, two lines of different Greek texts from which the Bible translations come from, and we compared and went through and, and showed how the modern Bible versions, we're talking about the Bible versions that are translated from the Greek text that has been uh, brought forth from the 19th century, how they have been corrupted, and I don't have time to go through that and explain all of that, but if you were here last week, we saw and we went through and showed you how there are verses that are missing, how there are verses that have been changed to attack key doctrines like the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith. And uh, so I'm saying all that to say this. If you weren't here for last week's sermon or if you missed that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon because we're now in part two of this series, and it might feel a little bit like you're coming into the middle of a movie, all right? Now, I'm going to do my best to make sure I explain everything and we go through thoroughly today, but I would definitely encourage you, especially if you're not familiar with the King James issue, to go back and listen to last week's sermon and get caught up in regards to that. Or, of course, the other thing you could do is check out our documentary. We give these out for free, uh, but New World War Bible Versions, we have them in the foyer. If you've not watched this, this is a documentary that our church was able to be a part of, and we explain the differences between the different versions of the Bible and the modern Bible versions and why we are King James only at Verity Baptist Church. We believe that the King James Bible is the inspired, preserved Word of God in the English language. And we went through and explained that last week, and hopefully you remember that and that makes sense. Now, in this sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to answer the question, 
Is the King James Bible needed for salvation? Is the King James Bible needed for salvation? And this is a little bit of a controversial uh, topic. Even amongst King James-only people, there are different thoughts and ideas in regards to that. And what I want to do today is kind of just lay out some doctrinal principles that you need to understand about this issue. So again, normally I preach a very practical, application-driven type sermons, but today we're going to be more of a doctrinal type sermon, and that's okay. We'll get back to the other stuff later, but every once in a while it's good to kind of just take a break and figure out what we believe and why we believe it. I'm going to give you some statements in regards to this doctrine. I'd love for you to write these down so you can have them, so you can study them at home, so you can reference back to them, and on the back of your course of the week, there is a place for you to write some notes down. If you don't have a baby sitting on your lap or something like that, I'd love for you to write these statements down. But like I said, I need you to kind of put your thinking cap on as we talk about these doctrines and this idea of the Bible and its relationship to salvation. So we're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want you to notice verse number 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7 says this, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Now, I'm going to give you three doctrinal statements, and I tried to make them as clear and not complicated as possible, but I'd like to write these down, okay? Statement number one is this. The Bible cannot be understood by unsaved people. Something you need to understand about the doctrines of the Word of God is that the Bible is a spiritual book that cannot be understood by those who are not spiritual or do not have the new man or do not have the Spirit of God, all right? So here's a statement. The Bible cannot, the Bible cannot be understood by unsaved people. Now, I'm going to prove that to you from this text, and we're going to look at some other texts to prove the same point. But I want you to notice what it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. The Bible says this, but we speak, all right? Now, this is Paul as a believer, and uh, along with the church at Corinth there, he's saying, but we speak the wisdom of God. He says, when we stand up and we preach the word of God, we preach the things of God, we preach the word of God. He says, we speak the wisdom of God, but notice what he says, in a mystery. Even, notice the words, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Here's what you need to understand. The wisdom of God, according to the Bible, is a mystery and it is hidden. Unsaved people, unbelieving people look at the Word of God and they see it as foolishness. It's a mystery to them. It is hidden to them. They look at, you know, uh, the Word of God today, and they look at simple passages like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what they say? They say, that's foolishness. That's a mystery. We don't understand that. And what's funny about that is that the same unbelievers will say, you know, uh, we came from a monkey. Well, that's science. You know, that makes sense. The fact that, uh, you know, something produced something that isn't of the same kind. But you say, well, why is that? Here's why it is. is because the wisdom of God is a mystery. It is hidden. Notice what it says in verse 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew. All right? It says, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here's what he's saying. The wisdom that is a mystery, that is hidden, was not known by the princes, was not known by the leaders, was not known by the philosophers of this world. He says if they would have known it, they would have never killed Jesus. If they would have known it, they would have believed on him. Notice verse 9, but as it is written, 
I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, oftentimes, 1 Corinthians 2.9 is used uh, in reference to heaven. And people say, you know, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared in, in reference to heaven. And I don't, I'm not saying that's a wrong application because that's definitely part of it. But I want you to understand the actual context of the passage is that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things referring to the mystery of God's wisdom, the hidden uh, wisdom of God, those things which do reveal what God hath prepared for them that love Him. So what we're learning here is that there is no eye of a human that's not saved, no ear of a person that is not saved, no heart of an individual that is not saved that can comprehend the mystery of God's hidden wisdom. The eye and the ear and the heart of man cannot comprehend the mystery of God's hidden wisdom. Notice verse 10. But God hath revealed them. God hath revealed what? The hidden mystery, the mystery of his wisdom. Do you understand the context that we're looking? He says, but God hath revealed them. How did God reveal them? Notice, unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And I'm kind of walking through this slowly because I want to make sure you understand the context of this passage. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the wisdom of God is a mystery. The wisdom of God is hidden. He says, no man, no prince of this world knew it, understood it. He says, I have not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And then he says this, but God hath, hath revealed. He says, it's not that it's hidden from everybody. It is revealed unto them, uh, unto us. Notice, it's revealed unto us. Why? Why is it revealed to believers? Why is it revealed to those who are saved? By His Spirit. Why? For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. See, you can understand the deep things of the Word of God, but the only reason you can understand the things we've talked about in the past, like end times prophecy and the things that are going to come in the future, the only reason you can understand that is by the Spirit of God, and it's if you're saved. God has revealed the mystery of God's hidden wisdom by His Spirit. I want you to notice verse 11, and I, I realize that we're, we're going a little slow with this and maybe slower than I usually do, but I want you to understand this. It's kind of interesting. Verse 11 is an interesting verse to me. He says this, For, no, for what man knoweth, notice what he says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, <clears throat> save the spirit of man which is in him. Now here's what he's doing. He's laying down a principle of nature. He says, And what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man, which is in him. Here's what he's teaching and here's what he's, what he's explaining. He's saying, in order to communicate and to understand, in order for two types or two kinds to be able to communicate and to understand, they must have the same spirit. He says, for what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him. Here's what he's saying. And I want you to understand it. Understand what he's saying. He's saying this. The reason that I as a man, as a human being, am able to communicate with you as a man, as a human being, is because we have the same spirit of a man or a human being. And you might say, well, no, it's because we both speak English. But think about this. You can communicate with someone who doesn't speak the same language that you do. 
I mean, you would be able to understand if someone who doesn't speak English is injured or hurt or asking for help or crying or upset. We can communicate with each other as human beings because of the fact that we all have the same spirit, we're all the same kind, we're all the same type, we are human beings. Here's the bottom line. You cannot communicate with your dog. Now, some of you think you can communicate with your dog. You think you're the dog whisperer or the cat whisperer or the horse whisperer, but the truth of the matter is you can't communicate with your dog. Why? Because your dog has a different spirit. It's a different kind. Now, here's the thing. Dogs can communicate with each other. Horses can communicate with each other. Animals can communicate with each other, but they can't communicate with humans. Why? Because here's what he says. For what man knoweth the things of a man? He says the only reason that you can communicate with another man. He says, what man can do that save except the spirit of man which is in him? Now, you need to understand that because he's about to use that as an, as an, uh, uh, an example. Notice the last part of verse 11. He says, even so... He says, in the same way that a human can communicate with another human because they have the same spirit, or a dog can communicate with another dog because they have the same spirit, or somehow mama bear can communicate with cub bears and they understand what they're doing and they understand what they're going because they have the same spirit. Here's what he says, even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. You say, why can an unbeliever not understand the things of God? Here's why, because they don't have the same spirit. You say, well, why can we understand the things of God? Because we have the Spirit of God. And by the way, that's the only reason you can understand the things of God. No, please understand this. No unsaved person, the Bible teaches us extremely clearly, and I'm taking my time to go through this text and kind of beating a dead horse uh, and, the, and the horse whisperer uh, to, to make sure you understand this. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man. Look, no man can understand the things of God. No man can comprehend the things of God but the Spirit of God. Humans are able to understand humans because they have the same spirit. Animals are able to understand other animals because they have the same spirit. We cannot understand the things of God. The only reason, please understand this, the only reason believers can understand, the only reason believers can understand this spiritual book. Do you understand that the Bible is not a book like any other book? It is a spiritual book. The Bible says it is quick and powerful. It is alive. The Bible says that it is uh, that 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 these words are spirit. And, and, and the Bible and, and here's what you understand: the only reason believers can understand a spiritual book, the Bible, is because they have the Spirit of God. That's it. You say, prove it. Look at verse twelve. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. Notice that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. See, we might know the things that are freely given to us of God because we have the Spirit of God. The only reason believers can understand the spiritual book, the Bible, is because believers have the Spirit of God. This is clearly taught throughout Scripture, but I want to make sure you understand this doctrinal idea that the Bible, the Bible cannot, cannot be understood by unsaved people. The only reason believers can understand the spiritual book, the Bible, is because believers have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Let me say this. Unbelievers 
cannot understand the spiritual book, the Bible, because they do not have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. By the way, that's how we preach the Word of God. We compare spiritual things with spiritual. We don't compare the Word of God with other books made by man or written by man. We compare the Word of God with the Word of God, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, verse 14. But the natural man, The normal man, the unsaved man, the unbelieving man, the unregenerate man, the unspiritual man, the man that has not received the new man, the spiritual man, or the Holy Spirit of God. That's what that's referring to, verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Look, can it be any more clear? An unbeliever cannot understand the words of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. That's what the Bible says. Clearly states it as we just walk through those verses and explain them. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you say, I didn't get that, you may not be saved. (laughs) Or I don't care. It's probably because you're not saved. But if you just walk through that and you're like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You didn't get that because you're smart. You got that because the Holy Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit of God. See, when when the Word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit of God communes with your spirit. You know what he says? He says, that's true. That's true. That's truth. You say, why do you get that? Because of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, that's why you get it. Unbelievers cannot understand the Spirit of God. Let me give you another example. We could go through a lot of examples. Let me give you another one. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You're there in 1 Corinthians? Just skip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is probably the clearest passage to teach that passage or to teach that concept or teach that doctrine. But let me explain it to you just from another passage just so you see that we're not just pulling one uh, verse out of context. Although I don't know how you could say that since we just walked through about eight verses. Uh, you know, and explain it line upon line. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13, notice what the Bible says. You're there in 1 Corinthians, there's one book over. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. And not as Moses, okay, now he's going to give an example here. And he's talking about the Old Testament Jews and even the Jews living today. He says, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So if you remember, he's using the illustration of Moses. Moses went up to Mount Sinai. He spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting up there with God. When he came down, the Bible says that his face shone. So he put a veil upon his face so that people could look at him because they could not see him when his face shone. He's using this as an analogy or as an example. He says, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Verse 14. But I want you to notice, he says, But their minds were blinded. He says, They could not see. Now, if you remember 1 Corinthians 2, we saw, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for him. Now, here he says, But their minds were blinded, For until this day, notice what he says, until this day, Paul is saying, until right now remaineth the same veil untaken away. He says that veil has not been removed, has not been taken away. You say, what do you mean, Paul? Notice, in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Here's what he's saying. To this day, the unbelieving Jews 
have a veil that has blinded their mind that has not been taken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Please understand this. The Jews today do not understand the Old Testament. Say, how could you say that? You know, I can say it because that's what the Word of God says. And they'll say, oh, we serve the same God. You don't even understand the Bible. I mean, how can a Jew read Isaiah 53 and not walk away believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you read Isaiah 53? Have you read the Old Testament prophecies of the Lord Jesus? I mean, it's spelled out. It says he'll be born of a virgin. It says that he'll be pierced. It says that he'll be betrayed by a friend. It, it spells it out all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament tells us that the law and the prophets explain the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how can they not see it? Newsflash, they're not saved. He says, their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. You say, well, how do you take that veil away? Notice, which veil is done away? In Christ. When you get saved, when you're in Christ, the veil gets taken away. Now you can understand the Bible. Because the natural man understandeth not, because the natural man, excuse me, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Because they're spiritually discerned. But when they are in Christ, the veil is removed. Now, all of a sudden, it makes sense. 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 15. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. See, if they turn to the Lord... See, if they went into Christ, if they got saved, then the veil would be taken away. They'd understand it. But because they're not saved, the veil is still there. They cannot understand. They cannot comprehend. So here's the first doctrinal statement, doctrinal uh, uh, thing that you need to understand as we kind of lay this foundation, okay? The Bible cannot be understood by unsaved people. The Bible cannot be understood by unsaved people. And by the way, and I've used this before, but I'll just use it again. This is why when you look at false religion, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you start at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you head back, you'll go past Jude, past 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me explain this. The fact that unsaved people cannot understand the Bible should be evident to you when you study the doctrines of false religions that were created by people that aren't even saved. I mean, isn't it funny that the Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast? But you've got the Roman Catholics who say, no, no, it's of works. You've got to do good deeds. You've got to uh, go to the confessional booth. You have to take sacraments. You have to do this. You have to, you have to take your last, uh, you, you know, all the seven different sacraments they have. They're not saved. Here's what's funny, though. These are the same people. These are the same people that you go to the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels and Jesus is asked, you know, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, here's, here's the thing, guys. I'm going to give you an example of a prayer. I'm going to give you a pattern prayer. Study it. Read it. But Jesus tells the disciples, but here's what I don't want you to do, guys. I do not want you to just repeat this over and over again. I, he said, vain and repetitious prayers are of the heathen, okay? I'm going to give you this prayer so you can kind of understand and have an example of how to pray, but do not just vainly repeat this prayer over and over again. You got it? Disciples, got it. All right, here's an example. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And then the Roman Catholics say, hey, I've got an idea. Let's take that prayer and repeat it over and over again. And you say, what in the world? That's exactly what he told you not to do. But you say, well, why don't they get it? Because they're not saved. Because a natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Do you understand that? 
That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses say 144,000 are the only that go to heaven. And then you go to Revelation chapter 7 and you go to Revelation chapter 14, the two passages that talk about 144,000, and it actually says 144,000 are, are the only ones that come down. The entire multitude of believers are raptured up to heaven. The 144,000 come down from heaven during the wrath of God. That's why they're marked so that they won't be hurt. But the Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, the 144,000 are the only ones that go to heaven. And everybody else stays on earth. And you think, what? That's the opposite of what it says. You say, why, why is that? Because they're not saved. I mean, it, it, this doctrine that unbelievers cannot understand the word of God should be fairly clear to understand when you just look at The Bible says, but God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and caused repentance works. And then what do these unbelievers say? You got to repent of your sins to be saved. It's like, but that's adding works to salvation. Oh, no, it's kind of it's just a different side of faith. What? Look, it's either by grace or if it's of work. If it be of grace, then it is no more work. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And you say, well, that's clear to everybody who's saved. But when you're an unbelieving heathen, you cannot understand the things of God. Why? Because the Bible cannot be understood by unbelievers, period. It's clear. Now let me give you the second statement. The Bible is required for the salvation of his soul. The Bible, and this shouldn't be that complicated, and it shouldn't even be that controversial, but it's controversial even among independent federal Baptists today. The Bible is required for the salvation of a soul. Let me give you the most clear verse in the Bible, although there are several verses we'll look at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again. Now that phrase, born again, ought to ring a bell to you. There was a pretty famous God-in-the-flesh man who said that term, born again. Do you remember? You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it for you. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The term or the phrase being born again is a reference to salvation. In fact, it is the reference to the new birth or the spiritual birth. See, you are born a natural man. But when you get saved, when you put your faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are regenerated. You are created a new man. You are born again spiritually. There's now a spiritual man with the help of the Holy Spirit can understand the spiritual book. He says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the reference that Peter is referring back to in 1 Peter 1.23. He says, being born again. Now, when he says being born again, he's saying, being saved. Okay? This is how you get saved. Notice what he says. And not of corruptible seed. He says, look, you're not born again of corruptible seed, but here's how you are born again of incorruptible seed. Here's what he's saying. There is seed that is required to get you saved. And you cannot be born again of seed that has been corrupted. You must be born again of incorruptible seed. And you say, well, I don't understand. What is he talking about? Okay, notice the Bible defines itself. Notice what he says. By the word of God, which liveth, because it's, it's alive, it's a spiritual book, and abideth, that's the preservation, inspiration, preservation of Scripture, forever. Look. This verse clearly states that you can only be born again of incorruptible 
seed, not corruptible seed. Jesus said, be born again. Go, go to, let me just go, uh, keep your place there in First Peter. Go to Luke chapter 8, just real quickly. And, and, and we could go through this all day long and, and, and look at a lot of passages. I'm not going to do that. You can study that out on your own, but I'll show you one example. Throughout the Bible, the Word of God is, the illustration of seed is used for the Word of God. Let me just give you one example of that. Luke chapter 8, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 5, starts the famous parable of the parable of the sower. I'm sure you've all heard the parable of the sower, and it is a parable of people getting saved. Now, notice how it begins. Luke chapter 8 and verse 5. I, a sower went out to sow his seed. That's how it all starts. Now, he's sowing it in different grounds. Some people get saved. Some people don't. Some people get saved and, uh, and, and get right with God. Some people don't, whatever. But here's what he, here's how it all starts. A sower went out to sow his seed. Now, remember, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What is, what is the seed? What does this mean? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 11. Luke chapter 8, verse 11. Now, the parable is this. This is Jesus explaining the parable. The seed is the word of God. Do you see that? The seed is the word of God. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Here's what we can learn from that. There is seed that is corrupted, and there is seed that is not corrupted. There is a word of God that is corrupted. And there is a word of God which is not corrupted. And I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon. That's why I need you to go back and review it if it's not something you're familiar with. But remember, Paul said, we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. We talked about it last week. There are Bibles today that are corrupted. You say, how do you know they're corrupted? Because they attack the deity of Christ. Because they attack the virgin birth. Because they attack salvation by grace through faith. Because, good night, they called Jesus Satan in Isaiah. I mean, you don't, you don't think that's a corrupted word? The seed is the word of God, and the Bible says that you must be born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. If you kept your place in 1 Peter, though, from 1 Peter, go to 2 Timothy, okay? So from 1 Peter, keep going backwards. Go past James, Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, 2 Timothy, okay? If, you, if you're in 1 Peter, James, Hebrews, go backwards, Philemon, Titus, 2 Timothy. Let me give you another verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll just give you several verses so you can make sure you understand this doctrine. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The uncorrupted Bible is required for the salvation of a soul. The uncorrupted Bible is required. It is required for the salvation of a soul. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. And that from a child. This is Timothy, uh, excuse me, Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, and that from a child. Thou hast known, notice, the holy scriptures. This is the word of God. This is the seed. This is the uncorruptible word. Notice what the holy scriptures are able to do. Which are able to make thee wise. Unto what? Salvation. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. How did Timothy get saved? Through the word of God. That from a child... He has known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. And by the way, that's how anybody and everybody gets saved. Being born again, not of, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Go to Romans chapter 10. If you kept your place in 2 Corinthians, if you go backwards, you got 1 Corinthians, and then you got Romans. Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 17. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Romans ten seventeen says this. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. So then, faith cometh by hearing, 
And this is important. How do people get saved? You know, you're saved by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, right? How do you get, how does the faith come? How do you believe on something? Well, it comes by hearing. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We're going to talk more about that later on in the sermon. Faith cometh by hearing, notice, and hearing by the word of God. Look, if somebody ever, if anybody ever gets saved, they get saved by the word of God, period. And it must be the incorruptible word. Now, let me just make this statement because I want to be extremely clear, and I'm not trying to offend you, but you need to understand this. No one gets saved out of the NIV. No one gets saved out of the ESV. No one gets saved out of the, Americans, the New American Standard Version, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, or any other modern Bible version today. You say, how can you say that? On the authority of the Word of God. Amen. Being born again, not of corruptible, but of incorruptible seed. By the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now look, if you don't believe that, that's fine. That's, that's your prerogative, but you've got a problem with the Word of God. You say, well, the, how do you know the ESV is corrupted? Again, it's been corrupted it's been changed. They've removed 16 entire verses. They've removed tons of phrases and words. They've changed uh, verses to make salvation of works versus by grace. They've changed, you know, they've attacked Jesus. They've attacked his deity. They've removed every chance they get. They remove his name and they remove his person. They, they, it's, it's a corrupted word of God. And you say, well, how do you believe that? How can you believe that? I can believe that because that's what the Bible says. Now, let me just answer some commonly asked questions. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, okay, Pastor, I see what you're saying from the Bible, but I just, some of these things don't make sense. You know, let me answer some, some questions for you, okay? Can people get saved from modern Bible versions? The answer is no. No, they cannot. Now, oftentimes when you preach this or you teach this, people will say this, well, then how did people get saved before the King James Bible? So you're saying that you have to have the King James Bible. It's translated in 1611. How did people get saved before the King James Bible? But if you remember last week, we talked about the two different lines of manuscripts. You've got the Textus Receptus, and I don't have time to develop that whole sermon. I preached that last week, and again, if you missed it, you need to, or, or if you don't remember it, or if you didn't catch it, you need to go back and, and study that out. You've got the majority text, 5,309, I think it was, Greek manuscripts that all 90 Five to 97% of them agree with each other. Those were compiled together to make the majority text. Every Bible from the time of Christ till the late 1800s and 1900s was translated from that one text. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, they found some manuscripts, one in a trash can of a monastery, the other one in the basement of the Vatican, which is not a place we should be trusting as New Testament believers. And then they dug up other ones in a cave by, by the Dead Sea. You know, they found them hidden or whatever. They've got the 5 to 3% of manuscripts that do not agree with the rest. And they created their own Greek text out of those manuscripts. And that is the Greek text where most Bibles today, modern Bible versions, most of them, especially anything translated after the 1900s, is translated from that Greek text, which is why it's corrupt. Look, things that are different are not the same. And we did it last week, King James versus NIV, we compared them, King James versus ESV, we compared them, King James versus New American Standard, we compared them, 
They're not the same. They don't say the same things. I'm sorry to break it to you. And some of you have never heard this before, and I'm not mad at you. I'm just trying to help you out. They do not say the same thing. They're different. You say, why? Because they come from different manuscripts. They come from different Greek texts. So people say, well, then how did people get saved before the King James Bible? Well, here's what you need to understand. Before the King James Bible was translated, there were still Bibles that were translated from the majority text. So look, we're not saying that, you know, no, the, the, people couldn't get saved until 1611. That's a straw man argument. You people believe that nobody could get saved from before 1611. No, here's what we're saying. Anybody who's ever been saved, they better have gotten saved from the incorruptible word, which would have came from that majority Texas Receptus Greek text. Look, any Bible that is translated or that agrees with the Texas Receptus Greek text can get somebody saved. Say, well, then why do you say the NIV can't get somebody saved? Because it was not translated from that text. It was translated from a corruptive text. It was, and look, and to believe that the NIV is God's word, then you have to believe that for 1,900 years after the Lord Jesus Christ came on this earth, his word was lost in some cave by the Dead Sea. And nobody had the word of God. And the word of God does not exist on this earth. Nobody had it. It wasn't available to anybody. So people say, well, how did people get saved before the King James Bible? Well, they got saved with other Bibles that were translated from the same Greek text. You know that there's nothing special or magical about the name King James Bible? You say, well, why do you call it? Because King James is the man who orchestrated the organization of it. It ended up taking on his name. But it's not that the name makes it special. It's that the words make it special. It's the words that are in there. And any other Bible and any other language that said the same thing can get you saved as long as it's incorruptible. How do people get saved before the King James Bible, huh? <laughs> well, the Word of God has always been on this earth. And other Bibles that were translated and agree with the Texas Receptus can get people saved. Now, let me explain this. What if those Bibles are not perfect, right? Now, last week we talked about this. And again, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I want you to understand this. Even our King James Bible, there were seven English, uh, a total of, uh, of seven English Bibles, but there were six English Bibles that led up to the King James Bible. You had Tyndale's New Testament, and that basically was revised and purified, became the Miles Coverdale Bible. That was revised and purified, became the Matthews Bible. That was revised and purified, became the Great Bible. That was revised and purified, became the Geneva Bible. That was revised and purified, became the Bishop's Bible. And that was finally revised and purified and became the King James Version of the Bible. Please understand this. When the King James translator, 47 men, scholars, fluent in Greek and Hebrew and English and in many other dead and ancient languages, sat down. They did not sit down with just a blank sheet of paper and just started from scratch. They were working upon a book that had been already worked on by many scholars that was being purified. And here's what's interesting. You don't have to turn there. Samuel, oh, Samuel, good night. Psalm 12, 6 says this, the words of the Lord are pure words. By the way, that's the inspiration of Scripture. As silver... Tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. That's the preservation of Scripture. It's interesting that God says, he says, the words of the Lord are pure words, and he says, they're like. He says, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, and then he says this, purified seven times. It's interesting that there were seven different versions of the English Bible that led up to the seventh, the King James Bible, which is perfect, which is the incorruptible word which is the inspired and preserved. And again, I don't have time to re-preach last week's sermon. You don't understand those things. You need to go back and get those. But let me just say this, and let me explain this. 
There is a difference between a Bible that is not perfect and a Bible that is corrupted. There is a difference between a Bible where someone has taken the Texas Receptus, the majority text, and they're working on translating the proper Greek text, and they're purifying it. There's some mistakes in it. There's some issues with it. There's a difference between that Bible and a Bible that has been corrupted. See, when William Tyndale translated his New Testament, when the Miles Coverdale Bible was worked upon uh, after Tyndale's death, Miles Coverdale continued to work upon the work of Tyndale. When the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, all of these Bibles were, I, look, none of those Bibles were perfect. They had mistakes. They had issues that had to be worked out. They had to be revised. They had to be looked at. And eventually they got to the place where they were perfect. It's our King James Bible. But let me say this. None of those Bibles were corrupt. Here's what I mean by that. None of the men that wrote those Bibles leading up to the King James Bible had an agenda to attack the deity of Christ. Do you understand that? Last week we looked at verses that attacked the deity of Christ out of the modern Bible versions, that attacked the virgin birth out of the modern Bible versions, that attacked salvation by grace out of the modern Bible versions. These Bibles over here that were translated from the Texas Receptus, yes, they were not perfect, but they were not corrupt. Do you understand that? And just, just to give you an example of that, I'm going to just real quickly read off some verses to you. I just, I just picked... Just so that nobody would think that I'm trying to, like, choose certain verses, what I did was I went through and just picked some of the common verses that we use in our gospel presentation. I mean, would everybody who's a soul winner agree that these are pretty common verses we use in our gospel presentation? Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Ephesians 2.89, John 3.16, Romans 5.8, Romans 10.9. Okay, I'm going to read to you all of those verses from the King James Bible, and then I'm going to read to you all of those verses from the Geneva Bible, which was the Bible, that the, the, the last Bible for the King James, and the Bishop's Bible. So the two Bibles leading up to the King James Bible. Let me just read these verses to you, okay? As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10, King James Bible. Romans 3.10, Geneva Bible. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Bishop's Bible, Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Let me read to you Romans 3.23 out of the King James Bible. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me read to you Romans 3.23 out of the Geneva Bible. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. I want you to notice, that wasn't the same. In the King James, the phrase, for there is no difference, is actually in verse 22. In the Geneva Bible, it's the first part of verse 23, for there is no difference. And then where the King James verse begins, for all have sinned, and King James says, come short. Geneva Bible says, are deprived of the glory of God. I'm not defending that translation. I'm not saying that's the best way to say it. I think come short is the best way to say it. But I want you to notice, it's different, but it's not corrupted. Romans 3.23, out of the Bishop's Bible, for all have sinned. And and in the Bishop's Bible, there's a lot of, uh, the spelling is very different. Have is spelled H-A-U-E, because different letters had different uh, pronunciations back then. But Romans 3.23, out of the Bishop's Bible, for all have sinned and are destitute of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, out of the King James Bible, for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23, out of the Geneva Bible, for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23, out of the Bishop's Bible, for the reward of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's different, but what is a wage? A wage is something you earn, something you get as a result of. In the uh, Bishop's Bible, it uses the word reward. 
Ephesians 29, King James, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here's Ephesians 29, out of the Geneva Bible. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast himself. Ephesians 29, out of the Bishop's Bible. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast himself. So just that, they added that word, boast himself. At the end of the, of the verse. John 3.16, out of King James Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 from the Geneva Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal, uh, excuse me, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, out of the Bishop's Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, out of the NIV Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Now, wait a minute. Does God only have one son? As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Here's all I'm trying to explain to you. These Bibles, yes, they were not perfect. Yes, they were different. But you notice how they're not corrupted? The one and only son, John 3.16, out of the NIV, the ESV, the New, that has corrupted a doctrine of the word of God. Romans 5.8, King James Bible, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Out of the Geneva Bible, but God setteth out his love toward us, seeing that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, out of the Bishop's Bible, but God setteth out his love toward us, seeing that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, out of the King James Bible, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.9, out of the Geneva Bible, for if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.9, out of the Bishop's Bible, for if thou shalt knowledge with thy mouth. Okay, so King James says confess, which means to admit, to acknowledge. The Bishop's Bible, I'm not saying this was the best translation. I think confess is the best translation. It's the one that they use in the King James. But they said, For if thou shalt knowledge with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God is prayed from dead, thou shalt be saved. NIV, but if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now hold on a second. Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, already assuming that he is the Lord, using that as a title, versus that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's Lordship salvation. That's, I got to make him the Lord of my life in order to be saved. So it's not just faith, it's faith and making sure I do everything he tells me to do. Here's what I'm trying to explain to you. There were Bibles leading up to the King James Bible. No, they were not perfect, but they were not corrupted. NIV, the ESV, the standard, the versions today that have been translated from the modern Greek, Westcott and Horse, the Nestle, Adam, whatever, I can't think of the name right now, the, uh, the, the different Greek tests today, those have been corrupted. They have changed key doctrines. They have changed. Here's what I'm telling you. However people say it before the King James Bible. The Word of God has always existed on this earth. Let me say this. You know, how do people get saved in other languages? Just, just, I was just having a conversation with Arthur uh, not too long about this for the French Bible. So how do people get saved out of, out, of, out of Bible versions that are not King James? As long as they're translated from the Texas Receptus, as long as they agree with the Texas Receptus, it doesn't matter what... Do you know that God speaks all languages? We don't believe like the, Ruck, the, the, the Ruckmanites, people got to learn English to get saved. That's ridiculous. God created languages. God speaks all languages. And look, would to God that every language on this earth would have an incorruptible word of God in it, in their language. But here's what I would say. Even if they don't, you know, in Spanish, I'm, I'm, I speak Spanish, I'm fluent in Spanish. 
I will tell you this, in Spanish, as far as I can tell from my study, which has been limited, but other people's studies too, who I trust, who, who studied out, there is not a Spanish Bible that I would be comfortable saying, this is God's inspired, preserved Word of God, period. There's not. Say, Pastor Jimenez, what Bible do you use in Spanish when you read or in Spanish or when you give the gospel in Spanish? I use the Reina Valera Gomez, which was translated by an independent formal Baptist who's basically trying to take what was already worked upon as the Texas Receptus base in Spanish and trying to purify it to make it match the majority uh, text. Now, it's not perfect. It's got issues. There's a, even just as I read it, I find things that I think, I don't know if that's the right thing there or whatever. I believe that that one can be worked upon and can be purified so that one day the Spanish-speaking world could stand up and say, I have an inspired, preserved word of God. There are independent fundamental Baptists today in the Spanish world who stand up and say that, and they basically are saying it with the NIV version of their Spanish Bible. You know, I, if I say that, I want to say it with some integrity that it hasn't been corrupted. But you say, oh, okay, nobody gets saved in Spanish? But you know what? The Gomez Bible that I use, I'm, you know, that's the one I use. There's other ones that you could use. You can go back to, like, the 16, 1604 Spanish Reina Valera, which was actually translated before the King James Bible, and that's Texas Receptus based. You could use that. Here's what I'm saying. It's not perfect, but I think it can get people saved. It's not perfect, but here's what it's not. It's not corrupted. And you say, well, I speak a different language, and I don't know, you know, here, let me just give you just a rule of thumb. Basically, if you can find a Bible that was translated during the Reformation age, 1600, 1700, you know, early 1800s, you're probably, maybe even early 1900s, you're probably going to be safe, safe, but anything that was translated using the Westcott and Hort, Alexandrian, Vaticanus manuscripts, I'm sorry to tell you, is a corrupted Bible. Amen. Say, well, how do I know? How do I know which one's good and which one's bad? Real easy. When you go to John 3.16 and it says the one and only son versus the only begotten son, you know. When you go to Acts 8.36 and the verse is missing, you know. When you go to verses where instead of saying, you know, wide is the gate and, or excuse me, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and it says uh, narrow, uh, wide, or excuse me, straight is the gate and difficult is the way, when you go to verses that says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And instead it says, He that obeys not the Son shall not see life. Here's what I'm telling you. When you just compare them, and they're just attacking the deity of Christ, they're attacking the virgin birth, they're attacking salvation by grace through faith. When you go to Romans 10, 9, and it says, Shall confess that Jesus is Lord, you've got a problem. It's a false doctrine. It's wrong. And so I want to make sure people understand our position as King James only. We're not saying nobody could get saved till 1611. The King James Bible did not exist upon this earth till 1611. That's a ridiculous statement to make. And anyone who says that to try to attack us is being deceptive or is ignorant or is both. Because that's a straw man argument. The Word of God has been on this earth from the beginning. But the Word of God has been under attack from the beginning, like we learned last week. Let me answer another common question. How, oh, I already answered it. How do people get saved in other languages? So let's review real quick, okay? And I know I realize that this is kind of a more doctrinal type sermon, but what have we learned so far? Here's what we learned. Number one, the Bible cannot be understood by unsaved people. Number two, the Bible, the incorruptible Word of God, the incorrupted Bible, is required for salvation. Whatever that is in whatever language, and let me say this, as long as it's 
in the process of being purified and being perfected, as long as it's not corrupted, as long as the people who are translating are not, do not have an agenda of hating God and hating Jesus and corrupting specific doctrinal verses, then it's fine. Now, I wouldn't stand up and say it's perfect, but I'd use it out soul winning, and I think it can get people saved. Do you understand that? And people say this. People say, well, what if I go through and I find all of the verses in the NIV that match the King James? You know, first of all, show them to me because there's changes on literally every page. But the other question I have for people like that is, what are you trying to prove? If you've got a Bible that hates your Savior, why, well, I'm going to go through and just find all of the verses that match the King James, and I'm going to rip all those out, I'm going to show you. You know, you already showed me a lot. I, I know all I need to know about you. Because why? If you've got a perfect, inspired, preserved Word of God, why are you trying to reform Satan's corrupted version. So number one, the Bible cannot be understood by unbelievers, cannot be understood by unsaved people. Number two, the Bible is required. The incorruptible word is required for salvation. Let me give you the third statement, all right? Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. By the way, the passage we're going to look at right now, if you have an NIV, verse 36 is missing. Oh, excuse me, verse 37. Just check it out. If you have an NIV, if you have a modern Bible version, Acts chapter 8, your Bible will go, let me make sure I'm looking at the numbers right. Your Bible will go 36, 38. Verse 37 will be missing. Do you really want to trust with the, the eternity of your soul a Bible that doesn't even know how to count? You know, think about that. But let me make the third statement. And the third statement comes from these other statements, okay? What do we learn so far? Unsaved people cannot understand the Bible, period. And the Bible is required for the salvation of a soul. Now, that gives us a problem. We have a problem here. You say, Pastor, the Bible is required for the salvation of a soul. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I got it. But unsaved people cannot understand the Bible. So how do unsaved people get saved if they cannot understand the Bible? Here's point number three. The Bible must be explained by a saved person to an unsaved person. The Bible, here's the answer to your question. The Bible must be explained by a saved person to an unsaved person. You say, Pastor Jimenez, why is it that at Verity Baptist Church, you guys have 80 plus soul winners that go out every week into the community and knocks people's doors and invite them to church and you ask them questions. You know for sure if you died today, are you on your way to heaven? And when they say, I don't know, you ask them, could we show you from the Bible how you can know for sure? And you take the time. Why do 80 people in your church every week give up their Saturdays or their Thursdays or their Sundays afternoon to go out and preach the gospel to people? Why do you do that? Here's why we do that. Because the only way that people can get saved, the only way that an unbeliever can go from in a state of unbelief to a state of belief is if a saved person explains the word of God to them. Amen. So, Pastor, why don't you just send them all, why don't you just send mailers out with the word of God on it? Because unbelievers cannot understand the Bible. Why don't you just stand outside of Walmart and hand out Johns and Romans? Because they wouldn't be able to do anything with it. They can't understand it. They can't comprehend it. Unsaved people need, they need a safe person, to explain the gospel to them. Let me prove to you from the Bible, Acts 8, 29. Notice what the Bible says. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran hither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, 
Notice what Philip says to this eunuch. The, the, get the picture. The eunuch, he's a, the treasurer of uh, Candace, queen of the uh, Ethiopian. He's going down the road in Jerusalem. He's in a chariot. He's got Isaiah, the word of God, with him, and he's reading it. He's an unbeliever. He's trying to find the truth. He's trying to find the word of God. And by the way, I believe this. When unbelievers are seeking the word of God, God will send a soul winner. God will do his best to send a soul winner. That's why you better be ready, soul winner. And Philip ran hither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, notice what he says, Understandest thou what thou readest? The soul winner says to the sinner, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, and he said, this is what the sinner says, How can I accept some man should guide me? And he, the sinner, desired Philip, the soul winner, that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. And by the way, if you want to just write this, jot this down in your notes, this is from Isaiah 53, verses 7, part, halfway through verse 7 into uh, most of verse 8. He was led of the sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee. So he's asking him a question. The sinner is asking the soul winner a question. He says, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Notice, he doesn't understand it. He said, I don't get what Isaiah is talking about. Is Isaiah saying that this is going to happen to him? Or is Isaiah saying this is going to happen to somebody else? Verse 35, then Philip, notice, opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus the only evangelism you'll find in all the Bible is a saved person, someone with the Spirit of God and someone with the Word of God going to an unbeliever and explaining the gospel to them, period. Go to Ephesians 6. You're there in Acts? You know, Pastor Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. Ephesians 6, 19. We're almost done. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19 says this. This is what Paul said. Paul's putting in his prayer request. This is like our Wednesday night prayer meeting, how different church members put in their prayer requests. This is what Paul would have written down on the back of his communication card if he was at Verity Baptist Church. Ephesians 6, 19. He says this. And for me, he says, please, he just got done saying, talking about prayer in verse 18. He says, and for me, he says, pray this for me. That utterance, the word utterance means the act of uttering, a vocal expression, the opening up your, up your mouth and, and making a sound. He says, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the, don't miss this word, mystery. Remember where we started, Second, 1 Corinthians 2, 7? The mystery of God's hidden wisdom. He says, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. Why? Because that's the only way that an unbeliever can be saved. Oh, I think we should just go, Pastor, don't you think we'd get more done if we just didn't knock on doors and actually try to communicate with people, but we just put the invitation on the door. It's got the gospel on the back of it, and we'll just put, we'll just put door hangers everywhere. You say, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is this. If an unbeliever takes an invitation that has the gospel presentation and reads the verses, they won't understand it. Amen. Because unbelievers, because unbelievers cannot understand the word of God. Now, what I love about our movement, you know what I love about our movement? I love how judgmental <laughs> our movement is. We as fundamental Baptists, we're real good at being judgmental and critical. If there's a spiritual gift we've got, it's being judgmental and critical. 
And, you know, when you preach sermons like this, you know, the, the newer, younger Christians in our movement, you know what they say? Well, then why do you put the gospel presentation in the back of your tract? You're a hypocrite. Or, you know, what I could see coming down the pipeline is, well, I refuse to go soul winning with the gospel presentation on the back of the tract because I'm more spiritual than you are. You say, well, Pastor, okay, it's a legitimate question. Why do you put the gospel presentation on the back of a tract if unbelievers cannot understand the gospel? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a good resource for people who heard the gospel and did not get saved. You know that sometimes we go out soul winning and we present the entire gospel to people, and people hear it, they receive it, but they don't accept it, they don't believe it, and they might say, hey, you know what, let me think about it. You know, the Bible says that some people, they, so, that somebody plants the seed and somebody waters the seed and they get saved later on. When we give the gospel to someone and they hear it, we plant the seed, but they don't get saved. Having the gospel presentation on the back of the track is a good resource for someone who has already been, uh, been planted with the word of God and been preached and had the preach, uh, good night, and had the gospel preached to them. It's a good resource for them because if they've already heard the gospel, and they didn't get saved, but then later on they go and review the gospel presentation on there. They go back and review the verses that have already been explained to them. Then that is a good resource that might bring them to the place they might be able to get saved. But guess what? When that person gets saved, they didn't get saved reading that track. They got saved because a soul winner explained the gospel to them. But it's good to leave a resource with them. So you say, why do you put the gospel presentation on the back of the track? Because it's a good resource for people who heard the gospel and did not get saved. Because it helps them to have something to go back to, review, think about the Holy Spirit. The Word of God has already been planted in their heart. The Holy Spirit's working in their heart, and it might help them to get saved. There's another reason why we put the gospel presentation on the back of the track, because it's a good resource for people, for people who heard the gospel and did get saved. We get tons of people saved every week. And you know what? That individual that got saved, it might be good for them to have that gospel presentation on the back of the track. Why? Because maybe they have a friend or a loved one they'd like to share the gospel with. They're saved. They can do that. But now they have an invitation here that has point by point, verse by verse with an explanation. And they can go and share that with somebody else and get them saved. So why put the gospel presentation on the back of the truck? Well, it's a good resource for people who heard the gospel and did not get saved. It's a good resource for people who heard the gospel and did get saved. How about this? Number three, it's a good resource for an inexperienced soul winner. Now, we try to do our best to train our soul winners and give them the, uh, explain, you know, make sure they understand the gospel, give them tips on how to explain the gospel and all of those things. But you know what? For a new soul winner who's inexperienced a little, and a, a little nervous, it's a great, it's, it, 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 it's a great uh, cheat sheet. It, it, it's a great uh, safety net to know that if they freeze up, if they get lost, they can always pull out that track and it's got the gospel presentation right there for them. Now, we're not saying that soul winners should go out just reading tracts to people. We're not saying that. But it, it, maybe you're, you don't have a soul winning partner with you. Maybe you're giving the gospel at work or you're giving the gospel just in your daily life and you get kind of stuck and you just get lost a little bit. Maybe you freeze up. It's good always to know, hey, it's on the track. I can go through it. But let me give you the main, this is probably the main reason why it's good to put the gospel presentation on the back of a track. Because the reasons that I gave you, those are all real reasons, but they're hypothetical reasons. What if we give the gospel to someone, they don't get saved, but they read the track later and get saved? What if someone does get saved, but they want to give the gospel to a friend, then they have it there? What if there's an experienced soul winner who needs it? Now, I'm sure those are all good ones, but this is one that I know is true. I know this is true because I've done this myself. I've seen my wife do it. I've seen other pastors do it, all right? 
a reason why we put the gospel presentation on the back of the track, because it's a good resource for people who are already saved and looking for a good church. Say, how is that? Here's how that is. Because whenever someone hands me a track, either inviting me to church or like many of you do, you hand me a track and say, hey, my mom's thinking about going to this church or my friend's thinking about going to this church. What do you think about this church? You know, the first thing I do is I turn that thing around and I read the gospel presentation. Because I want to know, do these people believe you've got to repent of your sins to be saved? Do these people believe in eternal security? Do they, more than the little pastor's picture saying, we invite you to Sunday, what's going to tell me the most about this church is what do they believe about salvation? Amen. You say, well, Pastor Jimenez, why do you put the gospel presentation on the back? Because every other independent fundamental Baptist Christian out there who's maybe considering coming to our church and gets an invitation, the first thing they're going to do is turn that thing around and see what we believe about salvation. That's why. And you know what? Maybe instead of being your little judgmental, critical self, maybe you got to think about the fact that there have been people for, for years and decades before you who have been doing this for years and have thought these things through. Maybe there's a reason why we do what we do. Maybe we've, got, we, maybe we've already thought about it. Maybe you're a little, you know, been soul winning for three years self. Maybe we've already thought these things through. And we understand and we have reasons why we do what we do. So you know what? All of us should take a humility pill and realize that just because you've been around for a couple of years doing this thing, you know what? There's people that have been doing it for a lot longer than you. And they may have reasons and they may have, they may have thought it through. They may have gone through their little toddler, spiritual, rebellious self just like you. Well, we already asked all those questions, already rebuked all the pastors and had our lunch handed to us when they explained to us why we do what we do. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the last place we'll look at. 2 Peter chapter 1. You say, Pastor, I know somebody who says they got saved reading a track. What do you think about that? <laughs> I know somebody who says they got saved reading the Bible. What do you think about that? Oh, well, oh, man, if you know somebody, forget anything the Bible says, if you know someone. The series is called A More Sure Word, right? 1 Peter 1.18, let me remind you where we get this context from. 1 Peter 1.18, and this voice which came from heaven, we heard. This was Peter talking about an experience he had. He said, we heard the voice of God when we were with him in the, mount, uh, in the holy mount. He said, when we were on the mount of transfiguration, I audibly heard the, word, the voice of God saying about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter said, this is an experience that I had. I experienced this. And then he says this in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. He, say, he says, you know what's more sure than my experience is what the Bible says. You say, well, how can you say that nobody gets saved reading the Bible without a soul winner? How can you say that nobody gets saved reading a tract without a soul? How can you say that? I, I can say it because we have a more sure word of prophecy. And if that's what the Bible says, then I don't care what your experience says. If that's what the Bible says, and you know what I've learned over the eight-plus years of ministry is that there's lots of people who are just confused about their own salvation testimonies. I had a guy arguing with me. I got saved reading a track. You don't understand. I got this track, and it got me saved, and blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, I wasn't arguing. I'm like, okay, we're good. No problems. Okay. You know, and, and I'm just talking to him. But, you know, the more I talked to him, the more I talked to him, the more I talked to him, you know what he told me? They, he had like a Baptist uncle who had been praying for his salvation 
four years. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so you got this track in the invitation. That got you saved. But your Baptist relative who's been praying for you, quoting verses to you, explaining the gospel to you for years, they had nothing to do with that, really? Here's what I'm telling you. Hypothetically, if someone just never had the gospel spread to them, they opened up a track and read it, could they get saved? No! But you know what I've learned is most of these people who say, I got saved reading a track, I got saved reading the Bible, you know what you'll find is that they had somebody explain the gospel to them before that. They had a soul winner who explained the gospel to them. They had some grandmother or some uncle or some friend or some neighbor or some co-worker who's been talking to them. So did that person get saved reading a track? They can go around and say that if they want. It doesn't bother me, but it, it doesn't take away from what the Bible says. And we have a more sure word of prophecy. So look, just in general, don't allow... People's experiences cannot trump the Word of God. It doesn't matter what they experience. If the Bible says it, it's true, period. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. So what do we learn today? And again, I realize that this is more of a doctrinal sermon. Let me just review this real quickly. The Bible cannot be understood by unsaved people, period. I don't like that. It doesn't matter if you like it. It doesn't matter if I like it. That's what the Bible says. Number two, the Bible, the incorrupted Word of God, is required for salvation. Period. And number three, the Bible must be explained by saved people to unsaved people. It's the only way they can get saved. That's the only way they can get saved. And I apologize. I told you that's the last place we're going to look at. Let me just show you one verse real quickly. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, I just want to make this point. Acts chapter 8, I want you to notice this. Look at verse 31. Acts chapter 8. Pastor, you said that was the last word. Yeah, corruptible. My word's corruptible. God's word's incorruptible, all right? Acts 8.31. Let me just show you this real quick. And he said, remember the eunuch, Philip runs up, says, understand this how what thou readest. This is a man who's searching for the truth. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? I just want you to notice this phrase. Just get a hold of this phrase. You ought to underline this in your Bible. And he, this is the eunuch, desired Philip. I wonder how many people in Sacramento today searching for the truth they're reading they want they want they know they're not saved they know they're missing something they know they need something and they are desiring for a philip they're desiring for a soul winner who would come and explain it to them that's why we do what we do because there are eunuchs not literally all over this community who if someone would explain to them, they would get saved. And it's our job to open our mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these clear doctrinal uh, 